Aloha Kako. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa, pretty happy about the people you're going to meet today. And you know the Hoku Awards are like Hawaii's Grammys, and we'll be featuring the Hoku Hanohano Award winners throughout the show. Now, first up, this week on Oahu, Mayor Kirk Caldwell announced $10 million in COVID aid for artists and cultural organizations. It'll pay out in two tiers for businesses doing more than or less than a million dollars a year in revenue. It was a sunny day in Nu'uanu as arts leader Kumuhula Vicky Holt-Takamine explained who and what the money's for. We're actually ecstatic about being here at Queen Emma Summer Palace because these are the institutions that are struggling. And we're so happy that the mayor has made available this funding to help institutions, our museums, our culture and arts community, individual artists as well as small businesses. $10 million, can you imagine what that is going to do? It's going to infuse. This is reinvesting into our culture and arts community who will then share with everybody the stories, the songs, the dances, the music, the comedies. They'll be able to lift our spirits and lift our communities. Gig workers, occasional workers, entertainers, the new grant is meant to cover situations for other federal programs were not applicable. Oftentimes when we're looking at the programs that are being offered, we as culture and artists do not fit into that. We can't qualify. Like the mayor said, many of the artists that I work with are working out of their homes. They're paying taxes, just like all of us are paying taxes. A lot of those small businesses, they're mom and pops, they go to the marketplace, they go to arts markets, so they're very small. So we needed to develop a program that would fit all of the arts and cultural programs small ones, ones that have studios, ones that have gallery centers, ones that have museums. So we wanted to include the whole gamut of the wide breadth of arts and culture community here in Hawaii. Individual artists, small businesses, and then larger businesses that make up the nature of Hawaii and the city and county of Honolulu that are so important to our survival. We look at all of them, all of these arts and cultural organizations. We've participated, every single one of us. And if you think you're not an artist, I will challenge you. I'm going to find the artist in you. And, you know, I think about this pandemic kind of like the volcano that goes over. All the lava comes, flows down, and it destroys a lot of things in its way. And sometimes the lava goes around a kipuka, like this beautiful place we are. And then it germinates. So I think from this, we're going to have new businesses that can pop up. We'll, we'll seed new ideas, new programs. Artists will have to figure out how they're going to survive in the next few months to go from everyday face-to-face -face contact with local people and, and, and our tourist industry to a virtual online. And we have to pivot. We have to help them pivot to that. And so this is what this funding is for, to help our artists pivot to the next level, figure out how we go from face-to-face -face community, hands-on, to the virtual reality that many of them do not know how. Mayor Kirk Caldwell pointed to the importance of Hawaii's cultural legacy. You know, when we um, opened up the first time, Misty and I went down to Iolani Palace when it reopened. And one thing I learned immediately from Paula Akana is the challenges of just covering overhead like air conditioning. Iolani Palace is our Notre Dame. It's our defining building for the state of Hawaii, right in downtown Honolulu, just two blocks from City Hall and one block from the Capitol. And so I'm hoping folks like the Ilani Palace, friends of Ilani, 
can take advantage of this. I think it can help them, large institutions and small ones that we'd never know about, continue to flourish in a very troubling time. And that's all on the, on the website again, wanoahu.org slash culture dash arts. It's live now. Please go check it out. We've had over 5,000 hits and we didn't even have a press release yet. So it's only us Bala'al talking all about it, spreading the word to everybody. Everybody's all jazzed, excited. They're just really grateful that we did not forget you, gang. We did not. That's Misty Kila'i. Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Culture and the Arts. And we'll post a link to the new Culture and Arts Aid with this story. Now, a taste of what the city's working to preserve. Here's now Hoku Hanohano Male Vocalist of the Year, Josh Tatofi. He sings in Tongan. I mean, Tatofi scooped six hokus this year. He mixes Hawaiian, Jawaiian, and Tongan for a distinct Hawaii style. Hundreds of artists across Hawaii have been finishing stitches, they've been firing kilns, burnishing, buffing, photographing, and they've been filling out forms for the 2020 Hawaii Craftsman Show. Normally, it's a biggie, the state's largest statewide juried exhibition. This year, it's the debut exhibition in the new Downtown Arts Center. Chris Edwards is chair of the exhibition. Obviously, we had to check this space out. Well, the hard part is finding the Downtown Arts Center on the second floor of that pink fortress that is Chinatown Gateway Plaza, <laughs> right there on Nu'uanu and Bethel. Once you get into the space, it opens up. <laughs> oh, gee, nice digs, Chris. Oh, we're really excited about it. You know, it's been a long search for a space that is of the same size and quality of Linacona. And now that Linacona is not with us anymore, it's, um, it's really great to have an alternative. Even if you have to make it yourself. Even if you have to make it yourself. Well, you only have to do that really once. And then once it's up and running, it's going to be up and running. And it's going to be great. It's a beautiful space. It's uh, almost 3,000 square feet of open exhibition floor space. We've got pedestals and movable walls and a beautiful location downtown. It's going to revitalize the district. We're just really excited about it. You know, the long-term vision is to make this an art center. Similar to Linacona, it would have an exhibition space, spaces for workshops and classes, spaces for community groups to have their offices, as well as a gallery downstairs. The nice thing is there are no restrictions on sales here either. Would Hawaii craftsmen, how would Hawaii craftsmen be involved? Well, we're a charter member of this consortium that's been, that Sandy Pole has put together for the Downtown Arts Center. We agree to have some exhibitions here, 
We hope to move our offices here. And we're putting in a huge amount of sweat equity into the place. So we had a team of uh, 25 people painting the space and fixing everything that we could find. Small groups in order to be socially distant with each other, but we did it safely and everybody's healthy. And it was fun. People were really craving physical contact and a project. I've been astounded by how much people have responded to this space and also to the Hawaii Craftsman exhibition. We had a record number of entries this year, over 450. I was not expecting that. From all across the islands? From all across the islands. I think people are really excited about this new space. That's some of the feedback I got. Yes, let's support this. You know, this is important to our community. We need it. We're trying to revitalize this area and make it a place that is good for the arts. And is there some idea that, you know, you've got six months to prove yourselves and then uh, see what happens? Uh, yes, I think we do have. <laughs> We're on notice. Yeah, the city really wants to see that we can perform and that we can put something together that's meaningful to the community and the downtown district as well. So exciting. So, okay, the, the works that have come in so far, uh, they're being juried by sort of slide, by image, by your juror. That's correct. Yeah, the original plan, you know, Hoy Craftsman, normally, in a normal year, we do in-person jurying. We're the, I think, the last organization on the planet to actually bring a juror to Hawaii. And take fly them, to every island. Fly them to every island and have them look at work in person. We think that's important because three-dimensional work is very hard to judge from a photograph. Public programming is part of bringing the lecture here and exposing the Hawaii community to outside voices. This year, of course, that wasn't possible. So we're trying it online this year. We're still planning a physical exhibition. The jurying is going to be done online. Our juror is Susan Sarah Batten, who's the executive director at the San Jose Museum of Art. She has a history, actually, here in Hawaii. She was deputy director at the Honolulu Museum back in, I think, 2008. She's an artist herself, and she studied ceramics under Toshiko Takaezu when she was at Princeton. So she's a, just a great fit for us. How much award money is, is on the line for this show? We have over $6,000 of award money this year. Which Congratulations. Is, which is amazing. Actually, a, a lot of that money just came out of the blue, too. In this time when everybody is struggling a little bit, I was totally surprised. The Garden Island Arts Council contacted me and said, we would like to offer some award money. Yay, Carol. Yeah, yeah. And Sharon Tweak-Smith also oh. contacted me out of the blue and said she would like to put up a $1,000 award. So it's at the oh. top tier of our awards for excellence. What, what kind of uh, sense are you getting from these artists who are sending work in or, or that you've talked to, you know, who are Hawaii craftsmen people? I mean, what is life like? My overall sense is that we're all in a bit of a fog. It's been a little hard for people to create new artwork, but they are starting to come out of that fog, is what I could tell from talking to people. So a lot of people I talked to were like, yeah, I haven't been making that much, but I did make this. And then, you know, it's this amazing thing. And I'm like, hey, you know, <laughs> come on, enter that in the exhibition. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to ask you if you think the tourism reboot is going to affect this at all. In terms of the arts, and especially for Hawaii craftsmen and arts on Oahu, the tourism industry I don't think affects us that much, except that hotels often place artwork in them. But you don't see a lot of you know, serious artwork being bought by tourists. You know, the little stuff will sell, but the meaningful stuff is harder. Well, that's what we usually see in Hawaii craftsmen shows.
Meaningful stuff? Uh, Good, yeah. Meaningful, well-made. Yeah, and a big variety. That's my favorite thing. It's a variety of it. And also unknown artists. Mm. The best thing about a juried exhibition is that the juror is making choices without knowing who the artist is. So the work is judged just on what it, what it is, how it speaks to them. And so, you know, we have some of Hawaii's best-known artists mixed in with people that you've never heard of or have just started out. It gives everybody a chance. Once we get the space done, then we do intake and start on the installation. We'll only have like, I think, four days to do the installation. An exhibition like that has to run like clockwork. The time is very short because you want to um, give people as much time to do their work. Paying rent on a space is also expensive, so you want to turn things around as fast as you can. So this is like an Ocean's Eleven operation here. Like Mission <laughs> well, Impossible. <laughs> a little more sweat and a little less high technology. But yeah, we have well over 70 volunteers working on this exhibition. It's entirely created by the people that are in it. It warms my heart in, you know, in difficult times to know that, that people can come together and make something like this happen. You know, it's just, it's wonderful. Want to meet some of the people who are volunteering here? Oh. <laughs> we are um, still architecture students. Then we just try to, because uh, we get um, hired to design just the partition, but then because of the budget is really low, and then we also like thinking like this project really mean, meaningful. We want to make this happen, so we're like, okay, let's build it too. So. Architects, you guys are just like that. Yeah. You, know, you really are. We love to design, so and then when they have the opportunity to build, they're like, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Those young architects, Mai Tran and Jeho Choi, and they have one other friend, they formed Kiowao Studio. And you know what they're about? Sustainable building materials for Hawaii, like hempcrete. <laughs> How's that? And, you know, we were talking with Chris Edwards, chair of this year's Hawaii Craftsman Exhibition. See it in person at the Downtown Arts Center or digitally online, October 24th through November 14th. There's parking in the building, by the way. We'll post a link with the program. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Today, we shine the spotlight on that newly painted Holua mural on the east-facing wall of the Piikoi building in the Lihue Civic Center. Funding came through a quick build grant from the State Department of Health, and muralists completed it in less than a month. Here's what Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami said. When I see this mural and the striking imagery it represents, my spirits are immediately lifted, and I can envision a brighter future here in the Lihue Town Core. Art as revitalization. That's what he said. For today's quiz, can you name the two artists behind that Holua mural? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. We've got a reusable tote bag for you that says, you got it right. (laughs) 
Support for the Aloha Friday Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing the stories of Hawai'i's people and places on Aloha Friday. Updated listings and select virtual tours at locationshawaii.com. It's Pauhana Friday at the Honolulu Museum of Art tonight. That means free admission to the museum. In fact, every Friday night through December, Last week, I went with a family pod of three, plus two friends. you got to book your time in advance. You will have your temperature checked. Wear that mask and a shield if you'd like. And then, actually, my compadres agreed, wandering the galleries is a pleasure indeed. Helena Norton Westbrook is director of the Honolulu Museum of Art. We are so excited to be reopened, um, and, and that's kind of... Uh, the primary thing that we've been focused on in, in recent weeks, you know, just gearing up for our reopening and wanting to share with the community just a, a real sense of enthusiasm we have to kind of settle into this new rhythm. You know, it's clear that the pandemic is going to be with us for, for some time, right? So I think that there's a certain degree of, of understanding that there's a new normal that we have to embrace, right? And I think that we are just excited to start connecting with people again, you know, in a real physical space and to welcome people to the museum. You know, we've extended our hours on Friday and Saturday evenings, so we're open until nine o'clock. Friday is our Pauhana Friday. That's the best. That's free, and we're really looking forward to, you know, having people come and experience the museum and just really excited to get back to it. I saw uh, someone sitting sketching in a room, which I have, of course, not seen for so long. I saw a young father with a baby papoose on walking slowly through the galleries. We're taking every safety precaution, and the safety of our staff and of our community is of the utmost importance to us. So we have put a lot of time and thought into making sure from the moment that you arrive until you leave, you really feel safe and secure, and that the museum can truly be an oasis for our community, right? You know, Hartford Healthcare and Texas Medical Association. I mean, a lot of these different groups have put out ratings for the, I guess, relative safety of certain activities. And on a 10 scale, visiting a museum is consistently around number four. So it's low to moderate risk, I guess. Is, yeah, is and I think rated. one of the things that we're, we're really blessed with is just the beauty of our campus, right? And the, and the wonderful kind of courtyard and exterior spaces that we have. We're going to be doing even more things to kind of activate the outdoor spaces and, and really are going to embrace this as an opportunity to um, have people come in and experience the museum in that way as well. Can we look behind the scenes a little, Helena? You know, museums are not immortal and we're finding that out. You know, there have yeah. been polls taken in the museum industry I mean, saying that maybe a third don't expect to make it to the end of the year. That's right. So the Alliance of American Museums has a study out that they released at the beginning of the pandemic, which indicated that approximately 30% of museums um, are not going to survive the pandemic. And, you know, that is a sobering and, and terrifying number for our field. So something that we take really seriously. We are in a very good position in our museum. What is the annual budget of the museum? The annual budget ranges from about 13 to 15 million dollars a year. If you kind of think about it, like we have revenue from our visitors, right, which is like admissions and cafe, purchases in the shop, 
right? That's about a third. And then you have the donations that come in um, through membership and, and through higher level donations that we're very appreciative of. And then we have money that we draw from the endowment. So as I said, we're lucky to have a strong endowment of about $60 million. That fluctuates a little bit, but that means that the endowment, you know, is always generating a small percentage that can support our operating budget. You know, what about the museum school? Speaking of another thing people really care about. Right now, the art school is closed, and, and there's two reasons for that. One is the pandemic, and we do not feel at this time that we can safely bring people together in traditional classes. So that's really safety is, is top of mind. The other thing coinciding with that is that we have a grant and aid that we are putting towards renovations of the art school. And the idea is really to make that building as functional and well-maintained as possible for the long run, and also to really improve how we're running the classes there and, and to make sure that those facilities are really state of the art once we start to welcome people back into the space. Helena Norton Westbrook, director of the Honolulu Museum of Art. In the Contemporary Hawaii Gallery there, a show by two influential Hawaiian artists, sculptor Sean Brown, whose many public commissions we enjoy, and multimedia artist Imaika Lanikalahele. It was fun to see them, and the old favorites too. The Van Gogh, the fabulous Gauguin, the Alex Katz looked really good the other night. I mean, just think, almost everything we normally encounter is digital or mass-produced. Museums allow us to educate our eyes by looking at things that are well-made. Otherwise, how will we recognize quality? Jeff Peterson will be performing tonight for Outreach College free. Check it on out. Now, maybe the underwriting you heard here was the first word you got that the Hawaii Book and Music Festival has moved from May to October. I mean, that's a big change. And there's more, a partnership that seems a natural evolution. Let's talk about it with David DeLuca, publishing director at Best Press, owner of the Shop Bookstore, and chair of the board of the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. Bookstores and libraries were the first Netflix, right? You know, oh, I can go into this library and I have hundreds of thousands of books that I can select from and take whatever I want, you know, whatever I'm interested in. But I think that now that one-on-one -on -one time, that one-on-one -on -one, like tangible interaction and kind of jumping into your imagination, I think that's going to go back to books in a lot of ways. Again, I use my example of having a five-year-old, but I've seen my kids' interest in that tactile book become much more enlivened since we've been going through this. And there's a real enthusiasm that I think is increased for books. Books are a means for interaction, really, you know. You've really attempted to accomplish that with the sort of transformation of this year's Honolulu Book and Music Festival. With this transition of actually partnering with the University of Hawaii, and making the shift to the Manoa campus to keep this event focused on community, focused on being free, but trying to elevate it to the next level in terms of the quality of content it could present was really what led to where we are right now. 
this idea of focusing on what it is that the festival is more or less evolved into, which is a festival of ideas that's either manifested or released through book publications, through the arts, through live performances, and how it's rooted here in Hawaii. Not only Hawaiian culture, but local contemporary culture. So you started a deeper partnership with UH because I know your very first session was how can UH lead Hawaii forward? Yeah, totally. The focus is on going as direct as possible to Hawaii's next set of leaders. All phases of government, all phases of the economy. It's really that student body at the university that are going to be leading us forward and are going to be taking this localized community and this world forward over the next X amount of generations. I mean, this uh, seminar that you have on the lava visualization mm-hmm. workshop up there at UH, a perfect example of what you just described. So the idea was, was obviously originally to do this so people could, could come to the campus and partner with the university for the university to really use the festival as a chance to open itself up to the community and to be able to use the university from the standpoint of taking those global themes and connecting them down to what's happening locally and how are we approaching that locally was really sort of what the mission of the festival was in this transfiguration into being a virtual festival is allowing us to present all these topics, record them, edit them, and then put them up so people can watch it at their own leisure. If we're talking about disparities in Hawaii's health, that has a connection to talking about, you know, what's happening in food sustainability and agricultural sustainability in Hawaii as well, right? Healthier societies start with healthier systems of agriculture and healthier economics of agriculture. They all intertwine with each other because without technology and innovation, you can't have advances in healthcare. You can't have advances in the economics that are going to sustain agriculture in a localized context without knowing how to approach that in Hawaii through a Hawaiian cultural lens and a Hawaiian culture of meaning. You can't really do that and make it most successful. So this festival is really trying to incorporate all of those different concepts into one presentation palette and allow it to be used in a variety of different formats because it is being recorded and then it's just going to be made available for public access. This is then a partnership of Hawaii Book and Music Festival and the University of Hawaii. It is. The partnership, when it was initially conceived of, was very enthusiastically approached by UH administration, again, because it could allow the University of Hawaii to expose itself to the community at large in ways that it otherwise hasn't been able to. And so far, I think it's done a great great opportunity of doing that, right? And having those administrative leaders open themselves up to say, hey, this is what I'm doing and this is what my goal is for this university and how we're trying to shape Hawaii's future and shape the future of Hawaii for tomorrow. That was David DeLuca, chair of the board of the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. He also sits on the HPR board. Now here, Hoku winners Navai Eha, Group of the Year.
In a new series, we turn to our friends from the BBC with global insights and perspectives on the upcoming presidential election. Here's your Global View. From the BBC in London, I'm Rob Hugh-Jones with Global View on 2020, a look at how the world's been discussing the US presidential campaign. Coming up, what jihadist media make of this election? And will there be violence in America after November 3rd? Well, recently, much of the global media has focused on President Trump's health and his return to the campaign. That's a correspondent from Italian TV channel Rai. Reporting from the Trump rally in Florida this week, he said the president is pinning his hopes on, quote, the enthusiasm of his people, a people without masks, against Joe Biden, who prudently abstains from mass gatherings, unquote. Mr. Trump's recent tweet that he wanted all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by Christmas sparked loads of coverage in Afghanistan. Some wondered if it was sensible to withdraw U.S. forces while Afghan peace talks with the Taliban are going on. Others, like this former jihadi leader, told Tolo News TV it was nothing more than a ploy by Mr. Trump to garner votes. This is an electoral campaign as Trump is going toward the presidential election. Remarks to the U.S. network CBS also made headlines. A Taliban spokesman said it hoped for President Trump's re-election because of that promise to bring home U.S. troops. While our colleagues at BBC Monitoring follow jihadist media like al-Qaeda, the Islamic State group and the Taliban, so I asked Monitoring's Mina al-Lami what these outlets are actually saying. Well, so far they haven't said much, and this is typical of jihadist reactions. They're likely to say more closer to the date, and they will definitely have more to say after the announcement of the results. Jihadists have, for months now, been very gleeful in the political um, unrest, the civil unrest in the U.S. The aim for them is that the U.S. would be busy with its own internal problems and too distracted to send troops abroad and that that would help the jihadists operate more freely. Jihadists in general favor conservative governments like that of President Trump, the outspoken views of President Trump, his policies on immigration. Jihadists use that to support their narrative that Islam and Muslims are under attack. It's very different when you have Joe Biden saying, you know, quoting Prophet Muhammad and saying that if he is elected, then his policies will be more favorable to American Muslims. It makes it difficult for jihadists to push their us versus them narrative. Are these outlets influential to many people around the world or are they significant only to a small minority, would you say? Now, luckily, a lot of these big social media companies like Twitter and Facebook have managed to push out jihadists um, away from their platforms. And in general, these although these jihadists try to communicate their message to a global audience, still their reach is limited. And also for a group like Al-Qaeda that actually sometimes does try to address the American public, it's very unlikely that their messages will resonate with, with Americans on the one hand, and hopefully they won't even reach the Americans in the first place. Mina Al-Lami. One theme we've seen in media outlets around the world this week is concern about possible violence after the U.S. election. South Africa's Daily Maverick ran a fictionalized account of what could happen after a Biden victory, predicting violent clashes in the streets. While an article in Germany's Zeit said this, 
more and more people in the USA experience people with different political opinions as enemies. Well, that's what some of the world's media have been saying about the US campaign. I'm Rob Pugh-Jones at the BBC. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening with start dates through November 18th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. This week on Science Friday, how an alternative history of Cortez's conquests fits into the world of science fiction. We need new ways to narrate our yesterdays just as much as we need new visions of our tomorrows. Plus an introduction to Chicana futurism on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from YWCA of Kauai, with a confidential hotline for domestic violence or sexual assault at 245-6362. Also, online chat and texting support accessible at ywcakauai.org. Mahalo for your company this Aloha Friday. It's really great to have this time together to look at the challenges and the successes that we share living together here, right? We'll turn now to housing. Earlier this month, the UH Economic Research Organization, UHERO, interviewed almost 300 landlords and property managers. They found out about 11,000 Hawaii families are behind in rent. There is an eviction moratorium until the end of the year, but that's just two months away. So here, we'll talk with Brandy Menino of Hope Services on Hawaii Island. They and five partners are managing to deploy a million dollars worth of federal aid on their island every week. Jeff Gilbreth is Director of Lending and Development at Hawaii Community Lending, a statewide housing assistance program. I asked Jeff, what's the need that you see? Oh my gosh, no, I mean, it's, um, the need is huge. I don't even know where to begin, but what I can tell you is, doesn't matter if you're on Hawaii Island, Maui, Kauai, Oahu, the things we're hearing is that folks are having to make the decision between paying for food and paying for housing. That's what it's come down to for a lot of folks. And so we've heard from people that are saying, hey, I'm going to use up all of my savings, everything that I've held back, and I'm going to pay my housing so we have a roof. And then I'm going to cross my fingers that I can get to a food drop uh, to get food. This points to a sense of urgency that is felt at the community level with groups like Brandy and ours. We see this because we're dealing with it every day, and a lot of times we're dealing with it in our own families, but that same sense of urgency doesn't seem to be at the forefront of a lot of uh, public officials and policymakers, which this is this might be distant from where they're at, from, from what they're experiencing themselves, from the people they interact with, but I want it to be very clear. We're not just dealing with a potential rental eviction crisis. We're dealing with a foreclosure crisis, a food crisis. The partnerships that we're building now at each of the counties across the state and all these conversations we're having, these partnerships are so critical right now to get dollars out the door for CARES Act, but it's going to be so much more important when January hits and we don't have the CARES Act money to move, but we've got the partners and the will and the passion to be able to do this. This isn't going to go away just because CARES Act runs out in December. Um, We're all very aware of that. I think what you're seeing is the foundation of these longer-term partnerships starting to be built, 
that we're going to need as community members to make sure more of those folks don't slide off of the ladder, as you as you put it. The Hawaii County Rent and Mortgage Assistance Program has been up since August 17th. The whole purpose was to make good on really on Mayor Kim's vision to get resources to households of either lost income or reduced work hours due to COVID. And in particular, to get them at least $2,000 a month to help pay rent and mortgage. We can do this from March of 2020 through December 2020. The county really wants to see folks in their homes until after Christmas. There will be work to be done in January, but this heavy lift getting out $7.25 million has been taken on by six nonprofits, about 40 staff strong across the island, and then also to do the check, to send the check out to the landlord, to the mortgage lender, or to wire the funds. What's powerful is that this decentralized approach where we have these six nonprofits able to take these applications, process, and pay out uh, with some oversight by our organization as the lead agency has proven effective at getting uh, $2.3 million out in the first five weeks. And we are now scheduled to be done and have our $7.25 million out at about a clip of about a million dollars a week at this point. Is that unusual? I think if you compare it to other relief programs that have been funded by CARES Act, there have been a lot of hangups, struggles getting money out the door, and concerns related to, will we meet this December deadline to get the CARES Act money out? And if not, then that means the funds go back to the federal government and out of our economy, right? What do you think allows the success that this program on the Big Islands enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, it's a true public-private partnership. In particular, why NOI is the Hawaii County Rent and Mortgage Assistance Program took the recommendations of community leaders that served on the state legislature's COVID housing working group after them spending the time to, to go through and find all the best practices and lessons learned, we took these recommendations from community and are just applying them. Your organization, Community Lending, is a statewide organization, right? Why is okay. it working this way and all, with all the other groups you work with across the state? I think the difference is that they haven't taken those recommendations from the subcommittee and applied them. Yeah, Brandy, I mean, I was looking at your organization there, and you're both to avoid and then to overcome homelessness. So you're de- that's a broad spectrum there that you're dealing with. Could you describe the need on your island? Sure. I mean, in the 10 years that Hope Services have been existing, it's really to end homelessness, to overcome, like you mentioned, homelessness. The reason why getting involved in the prevention part is we know that if not us, then who if not all this network of organizations, the increase in homelessness will naturally occur. We know that when there was a huge disaster in our community, not just on the Big Island, but economic crisis after 9-11, we can see that how long it took to recover from that. And what we did see when there's cuts in mental health services, there's an increase in homelessness. This is totally out of the box, having to scale up so that we can be agile and responsive to the current community's needs. You know, this is typically the group that was working. They're employed, but the work is not available right now. You know, we really don't want them to get to a place where they fall into homelessness. That just makes it much more expensive, much harder to get out of. How many homeless, actually unsheltered homeless do you have over there? Yeah, we serve about 1,200 a year. And where are they geographically? They're mostly concentrated in Hilo and Kailua Kona, but geographically it's even. I mean, there's, you've still got clusters in Waimea town, 
Ocean View, Lower and Upper Puna. So they're island wide. How about at the beach parks? Yeah, the beach parks. Definitely storefronts, county parks, bushes, DLNR, Department of Homelands Land, the harbors, county parks, state parks, on other people's private property, squatting, or just pitching a tent on vacant property. With the CDC guidance, you know, they're actually saying to not do enforcements because just like how you would shelter in place in a home, right? People are trying to stay in their space, in their home on the streets. Um, for our county, they then created additional sheltering spaces. There's now additional 50 micro units in Hilo and in Kona. We're looking into modular housing as more affordable housing options in our community. Um, really? So is that, how that. many could you get? I mean, is that really a viable thing? Sure. I think it's just one strategy is not enough. Um, we need to be open to different types of housing that's affordable. So getting through our county colds, right? Those are all tricky things to get through. Yeah. And I would say, you know, to piggyback off of Brandy is that her nonprofit's movement into affordable housing development, it's not just her. You look statewide and nonprofits are taking on this challenge. It's gotten to a point where it's just, we're tired of waiting for folks. We're going to come together and try and do this ourselves. So Brandy is a great example of this in Hope Services. But you look at groups like Dynamic Solutions, they're doing the Puhonua Owainai project. These are the folks from the Waianae Boat Harbor who have acquired land and they're moving through the development process uh, led by themselves and led by community. And that's what we're going to need. The building of community-owned affordable housing projects where we are connected to community, connected to community engagement, and to the services that are provided so folks have support. And then on the other side of it, groups like Hawaii Community Lending are the ones who have capital. We're the ones that have money that can maybe help Brandy out here and there to find additional capital on the continent that can come in and help finance these projects. I believe that affordable housing development is going to be and should be part of our COVID economic recovery strategy. That's Jeff Gilbreth, Director of Lending and Development, Hawaii Community Lending. And on Hawaii Island, Brandy Menino, Director of Hope Services. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Presence, featuring works from the museum's collection by contemporary African-American artists, honolulumuseum.org. HPR is a nonprofit that is funded in large part by listeners, individuals making contributions they can afford and pooling their resources to support this essential public service. The vast majority of these funds go toward the things that matter most to you, the news and music you rely on, platforms like our website and mobile app, and the infrastructure that keeps you connected no matter where you are. Make the leap from listener to member. Become a sustainer in our fall pledge drive at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Anchor Systems Hawaii, providing foundation solutions for shifting hillside homes since 1997, including foundation repair, retaining walls, and slope stabilization. More at AnchorSystemsHawaii.com. Earlier in the show, we told you about a new mural on Ava Street there along the uh, Lihue Civic Center. 
artists Seth Womble and Samuel Shriver completed the Holua mural in less than a month. The project's the first of many coming to downtown Lihue this year. Now, Womble is part of Nirmana Fest, a week dedicated to the creation of five new murals along Evalu and Rice Streets there in Lihue. The fun kicks off this Sunday, runs through October 24th. Kauai residents will be out there creating art. Well, that's today's quiz. And if you've got one you'd like to share, send it on to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We'd love to hear it. And uh, here's now Hoku Female Vocalist of the Year, Natalie Ai Kamau. This year's Nahoku Hanohano Song of the Year is Kuhaheo e Kuu Hawaii, performed by over three dozen of Hawaii's finest musicians. It's a project by Hawaiian educational content creator Kanai Okana. Ryan Gonzo Gonzalez is a digital artist, musician, and director producer with Kanai Okana. He'll explain how this performance of Kuhaaheo emerged to win Song of the Year and Hawaiian Music Video of the Year. Gonzo says the project is rooted in the way Kanai Okana works. Kanai Okana is an entity, a network of 70-plus schools, organizations, and institutions that are committed to Aloha Aina. And they do that mostly through Hawaiian language, culture, and Aina-based education. And then my department, Kealibikomo'o, which is housed within Kamehameha Schools, supports all of the, the network. I sit under Kehawabad, who's actually my boss, and uh, we follow the direction and lead of what these leaders in the communities want. It's kind of a really unique setup so that there's a lot of collaboration that happens, and we kind of just amplify and empower what's happening on the ground in the communities. So what does that look like in terms of the content that you make available? It runs a broad spectrum. In the case of Kuha'aheo, which is Hina Le Moana Wong's awesome song. I know it was written before the whole monarchy thing, but it kind of got some legs through it. We take mele, we take mele lahui, mele aloha aina, any vessel that can hold our stories and our messages and our perspectives and get it to a broader circle of people, we try and do that. That kind of collaborative singing, song-making yeah. style, and then, then the video that you made of the moment when you did it, I mean, it, the whole package is astonishing. Yeah. First of all, I got to give credit to Na'alehu Anthony and the crew at OEV TV for having the foresight and the vision to actually record the video. When I was speaking with Zachary Lum and Chad Takasugi, who are the producers of the album, and they did most of the legwork to put it together, I remember I was on the lava field, it was like day two, and there was all of this stuff that was happening, and I was on the phone, and they were like, we need to do something. You know how everybody at the Pu'uhonua, I'm not sure if you were able to make it up there or you heard stories about it, but everybody just kind of fit into a role, whether you were a cook, a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer, a janitor, a music maker, Everybody just wanted to plug in and figure out how to amplify what was happening. Yeah, you had some really good people at the helm, but you couldn't do it without everybody just plugging into place and falling into the sweet spot. When everybody thinks about Aloha Aina or they think about, you know, what it is to be Hawaiian, there's these immediate visuals of I need to be in a lo'i or in a loko'i'a. My hands are physically dirty. Yes, that's part of it, but there's also so many other Aloha Aina that are in various aspects of life that might not 
ever get to be in Aloha on a regular basis, but they do things because they're connected to this Aloha Aina movement and they bring their skill set and their experiences to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So Kuha Aheo is musicians contributing in their way. Yeah. So Kanao Kana's goal is really simple when you boil it down. It's about growing the next generations with an S of Aloha Aina leaders. We view social media, Mele, or other vessels as just an extension of, of the classroom. And there's Haumana, there's students that aren't only just like K-12, but how can we make learning more accessible to a variety of people, whether you're Hawaiian or whether you're not? We're using the tools at our disposal today to reach Hawaiians and non-Hawaiians to get them to start having a relationship or connection to this idea of Aloha Aina and how it benefits and impacts their life. Can you kind of give an introduction to somebody who's just first coming to the Kanai Okana website? I mean, if you live here in Hawaii, or if you're going to come and have any kind of relationship to Hawaii, I think starting on a path to understand Hawaii, Hawaiians, its people, its culture, and its language, you can find all of that at kanaiokana.net. We're very active on social media at facebook.com slash kanaiokana. We've got a YouTube and Instagram. We don't have a TikTok yet, but we're, you know, we're thinking about it. You know, what you'll find there is just kind of an authentic and true on the ground, in the grass, in the lo'i, in the loko'i'a, in the courtroom's view of what's happening right now. Kanao Kana is really built upon the work of generations prior, and we're just trying to help lift that and, and bring that into new circles. Gonzo Gonzalez with Kanai Okana, producer of this year's Nahoku Song of the Year. Ku, ku ha'aheo e ku Hawaii by Hinale Moana Wong. Ku ha'aheo. The arts are bubbling back. Hawaii's Wood Show 2020 opens October 25th in a new venue, Hawaii Opera Theater Plaza, former Robin Bunton Gallery on Baratania Street. The show is sponsored by the Hawaii Forest Industry Association, so expect breathtaking wood from Hawaiian forests. There have been bowls, calabashes, full desks, intricate treasure boxes, all featuring the silky, glowing woods from our islands. Hawaii's Wood Show 2020, October 25th to November 7th. We will post the link. And the new Arts and Letters Building is opening its doors in the former Peggy Hopper space in Nu'uanu. The show, Aloha Friends and Neighbors, photographs from Hawaii Island, 1968 to 74, by the one and only Franco Samaraki. Guaranteed heart-opening exercises there. Show opens at the new Arts and Letters Building, October 21st. Whoa, there are so many things going on in our town, arts-wise. So happy to get to talk with you about them on Aloha Fridays. That about wraps it up for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for being with us. We love to hear from you, by the way. Let us know what you think by visiting the conversation page on the HPR website. Or you can go there to listen to our back shows. This program is lovingly produced by Lillian Zong, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. The Backyard Quiz theme was written by John DeMello, and our theme music's courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Join us Monday with Catherine Cruz to pick up the conversation. And until then, let's take care of each other. Happy Aloha Friday. Mm-hmm.